The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Postgraduate programs at the University of Auckland Business School help you expand your future options. Whether you want to switch careers or advance in your current field, New Zealand's number one business school can help you get there. Unlock your potential today at auckland.ac.nz forward slash business. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. My name is Toby Manhire. It's Prefu Day. It's a very special treat of a day. It's like a stocking on Christmas morning. And we have a stocking of our own here today. It's a special treat. Bernard Hickey. Yes, filled with chestnuts and all sorts of juicy bits and pieces. Because right. Prefu is a it's a big day for us. Um, he is geeks. Bernard Hickey. Those yeah. of you who have been hiding under a rock and aren't familiar, he is, of course, the steely-brained. Silky-voiced, sage of the political economy, the host of When the Facts Change, and the pilot of the Kaka journalistic universe. Yes. No, I, we have a lot of fun talking about politics and economics and all that stuff. And so it is a big day, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's an important kind of moment pillar in the election calendar now. That's right. I mean, we've, we get two budgets, we get four monetary policy statements, two financial uh-huh. stability reports, and one preview. Once every three years. So this is extra special. Mm-hmm. And because it really sets the uh, framework, the, the lays the foundations for what the political parties think they can promise, mm-hmm. and it gives the public some form of discipline, some form of way of measuring, you know, who's who's been good and who's been bad. To spell out the acronym, the pre-election fiscal update, I was looking back at 2005 the other day and it was called the the pre-EFU, which I guess is the pre-election. It was it was hyphenated, which is which is I'm sure you'll agree fascinating. But what 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 do we get from it that were it were it not for the fact of the pre-EFU, what would we not have? Might be a way of looking at it. So back in the dark days, pre-EFU, uh, when there was um, no. no um, placement of the books in front of the two parties before the election, Hmm. essentially the opposition and the public had to just take it on face value that the government was being honest Hmm. about what was happening in the the budgets. And because in uh, both 1984 and 1990, there was such turmoil and economic crisis happening partly caused by the election and and just by events, dear boy, then uh, uh, when the new government came in, they were yeah. shocked. And so was the public. And The incoming governments in both those years came in and went, what? The F, yeah. exactly. And in fact, in the Robert Muldoon case, not only did they go, what the F, but um, hey, we won the election, give me the keys. Yeah. Because he wouldn't hand it over. Yeah. And he refused to allow the new government to effectively devalue the currency. And in 1990, um, the new national government was shocked, shocked mm. when they discovered they had to bail out the BNZ. And also they were going into a very bad recession, in part caused by the new Reserve Bank led by Don Brash, who 
uh, squeezed the economy until the pips squeaked and it was 11% unemployment. Probably you and I were both unemployed at that point, Toby. I certainly was. Um, and I was, I'm sure I was barely a glint in someone's <laughs> eye. Yeah, no, probably was. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was really tough for the economy then. Now, um, because of the um, so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act and the Public Finance Act, there are a lot more controls on what the government can report about itself. And there's a some there's, there's some skerrick of independence in the Treasury's uh, calculation of what the surpluses and deficits are, right. what the fiscal risks are. And so when that a new government gets in, they can be fairly confident that's actually what the books will show them when they get there. Right. As far as it gets at an election campaign, this is a, a spin-free set of documents. Wow. It's like a new thing to spin, um, but, at least, <laughs> but at least it's fresh spin. Yeah. So thank you, Ruth Richardson. And today uh, the prefu was unveiled. What did it tell us? What's the helicopter view of what we're we're seeing today? Well, we knew before today that the economy was slowing and that this meant there was less tax revenue going into the coffers and mm-hmm. therefore the budget deficit was around about $2 billion bigger than what the Treasury had forecast in May with mm-hmm. the budget. So we knew it was going to be bad. The question is, was it more bad or less bad than we expected? And it's slightly less bad than we expected because um, the government is still on track to get into a surplus in the four-year track that Treasury forecasts properly. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have to borrow around about $9 billion more. Now, the economists, who, the bank economists who, who think about this stuff and come up with, with forecasts beforehand were expecting about $10 billion more of borrowing, and the number's only $9 billion. And also, the Treasury is saying there's not going to be a recession, a formal recession this year or next year. There's going to be a slowdown. Yeah. And actually, when you look at the size of the economy, it's going to be bigger than what they expected in May but not necessarily for a good reason. The reason it's going to be bigger is that migration has been faster than we all expected. Mm-hmm. In fact, we got some numbers today, record high net migration of well over 90,000 in the year to the end of July, and we're headed for 100,000, according to a couple of bank economists today. So um, just like the last 20 years where both national and labour have pulled the migration lever to get themselves out of trouble. Uh, that's what's happened here. Labor pulled the migration lever last year, and now there are you know groups of 30, 40 people um, living in houses in South Auckland without jobs, and a whole bunch of employers are going, phew, I can fill that job and not have to go through with that big wage increase. The government's happy because they've got a whole lot of people buying things here, working, getting income, being taxed, spending money that's being taxed on GST. And that's, you know, helped give the economy an extra cushion uh, when it it fell sharply because of much higher interest rates and a 15% fall in house prices, which, by the way, Treasury is now saying the fall in house prices is not going to be as big as it was. And in fact, it's going to bounce back a bit faster, thanks to this migration. Right. So just to pull back then on that overview, the last time this fiscal exercise was undertaken at the budget, the BFU, it's worse than what they're expecting then, but not as much worse as economists and commentators 
had led us to believe had predicted in the last few weeks and months. Yeah, so the opposition was saying, oh, it's going to be absolutely awful, there's going to be a recession, there's going to be a huge blowout in uh, borrowing. And to be fair, the government um, could see these numbers coming. They'd had the first cut of them probably six weeks ago, yeah. and decided, ooh, that doesn't look good. We better um, do some quick work to make sure that we get back into surplus in that four-year track. It was a $4 billion tightening of the belt. Yes, although looking closely at that $4 billion, a lot of it was effectively taking back money that hadn't been spent yet or essentially uh, wiping out money that had been allocated and um, they decided to unallocate it. So, and also there was some capital spending that was pulled and also some capital spending that basically hadn't gotten around to it because of the consenting delays. So, some, some climate so, fund. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, and there was a bunch of um, bits and pieces here and there and a few contractors who may not have as much work. But it wasn't the sort of Ruth Richardson style, you know, Night of the Long Knives slashing of benefits and spending and selling of state assets or anything like that. It was more of a a nip and a tuck uh, going into um, the election. And that helped soften the damage that we saw today. Right. So the fact of doing that kind of preemptive exercise made that not as bad as expected possible to some degree. Yeah. I suppose managing expectations was always part of the game. And I suspect that, you know, we had these rumours five or six weeks ago, you know, there was talk of, you know, huge blowouts and the government in panic. Yeah. I suspect some of that stuff came from the government itself. Yeah. And you you certainly want to give people the impression that, you know, um, things are tough and we've done some extra work and right. we've fixed it and we're responsible. Uh, but in that process, they had to, you know, get a little bit of uh, a, um, a smell of fear in the in the wind just to get also the, the attention of the bureaucrats who have yeah. been pretty comfortable. Before we come back to the politics, like moths to a flame, how does this set of numbers look in a global context? If we compare uh, both the analysis and the forecasts, if we compare those to similar countries, how do we look? Triple A. That's, in fact, what Standard & Poor's says. That's what all three ratings agencies says. Yeah, Um, They say, actually, uh, you know, all all of you people who've been hearing from politicians that times are tough and that the economy is really bad and um, New Zealand's in the fiscal toilet. Well, actually, the professionals, the ratings agencies and the bond investors, who are the ones who actually take the risks with their money and do the analysis about whether the government can repay the money and whether uh, the government and the economy is in real trouble and do you want to risk your savers' money with this country, they're absolutely happy to um, give their money to New Zealand to look after it and get paid 3 maybe 4%. And uh, they see New Zealand as a triple A-rated country with no risk of any downgrade. So when you hear a politician say that the world just ended and that uh, New Zealand is is uh, on a path to rack and ruin and there are debt monsters outside the front of parliament, mm. that is just plain wrong because the professionals who actually look at this stuff are going, you know what? New Zealand's net debt peaks at 28% of GDP. 
That compares with Australia, which has a very similar credit rating to us of closer to 40% of GDP. And other countries who have AAA ratings, uh, uh, for example, what actually slightly less uh, ratings, they that like the US and the UK, they have net debt to GDP of you know nearly a hundred percent, ninety something. Yeah, and then yeah. there's Japan, which uh, has very low interest rates, and the trains always run on time. They and they actually have a falling population, not to mention a falling uh, GDP, and they have well over two hundred percent of GDP in debt. So. Um, you always want to take with a grain of salt someone who says that there's been a debt blowout. There has not. Otherwise, the bond auctions that happen every week would be failing. We would have interest rates, you know, north of 10 15%. That's simply not the case, apart from anything else. Uh, we have an awful lot of local savings now that have to get invested in those bonds. The assumption is that the government is borrowing money from overseas all the time. That's just not true. We've got $100 billion worth of KiwiSaver funds and uh, about two over $200 billion of other types of funds, including um, ACC, New Zealand Superfund. So there's plenty of money to go around, and the government's uh, books are in perfectly fine shape. I, I would argue they should be in much, much worse shape in the way it's measured if we were actually going to solve our problems, but that's, that's um, yeah, well, for another gonna, day. I was going to say, it's good to, you, good to hear you acknowledge how true gods and sovereigns are the <laughs> ratings right. agencies yeah, after yeah, all, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the official gods are saying New Zealand's fine. <laughs> uh, I would say that God does not exist and that we actually should be looking at the real liabilities that are being built up because, remember... We talk about infrastructure debt, yeah, so climate resilience, exactly, and and also you know making people healthier. Mm. You know, we've got an enormous chunk of the population who are sick, who are stressed, who are um, not just financially stressed but physically stressed. Um, all sorts of grief around. Uh, poverty, where they live, how often their kids bounce from school to school, the number of times they have to go to hospital every winter. Uh, we're talking about at least 200,000 people who are in desperate straits mm. and, in, and are having to go to food banks twice as much as they were pre-COVID. You know, we have a lot of problems which could be solved with some proper investment and um, some proper incomes for those people on the lowest incomes. Now, the reason our books look good in the eyes of the ratings agencies is because we haven't spent that money. Watch, if you were being really serious about assessing the government's books, and that means uh, taking into account the true liabilities going out into the next 20 or 30 years, Treasury would be saying, right, we are not reducing our emissions fast enough, Hmm. so we're going to have to spend $25 billion on emissions credits overseas because we're going to fail to meet our Paris targets, and that should be a new liability in the books. Actually, um, they haven't uh, included that liability, and they haven't included the liability of those 200,000 people um, who are not eating the right things, getting sick, and will need to uh, be treated for diabetes and all sorts of other issues, mental health, over the next 20 or 30 years. Those liabilities are not measured. They're not included. And actually, when you look at this is the irony. So we've had all sorts of people today, opposition people, say, you know, the world is ending, the debt monster is in control. Uh, The government's had the worst record of any government ever, when actually the net worth of the government, as measured by the Treasury in the pre-election fiscal update, rose by more than $15 billion. Now, net worth is how most people would judge their success at the the end of every 
financial year, the snapshot of how much are you worth afterwards. Mm. And the reason the net worth rose is because the New Zealand Super Fund went up. There was a rally on stock markets. And here's the great irony, tragedy of it all. Um, the value of Kainga Ora went up because all of that land continues to rise in value. Right. And um, that makes the government, in theory, wealthier. I would say it's not wealthier because those liabilities around climate, around health, around housing are not properly measured, particularly when you take into account um, the fact that we're growing our population at currently 2% per year and we are underinvesting in all of the things you need to make that work to the tune of at least another $100 billion over the next 20 to 30 years, and that's on top of the $100 billion of deficit we built up over the last 30 years. So once again, the, the housing market is this distorting... Uh, bur- burdening presence in the economy as a whole. Yeah, even in the government's books yeah. where an increased value of residential land has made the government look more valuable through <laughs> Kaikoura. Uh, and and uh, also, um, you know, rallies on stock markets have made uh, the New Zealand Super Fund more mm. valuable. So uh, you won't hear that from an opposition. And to be fair, you probably won't hear, hear about it from a government because they would want to go around bragging that Kainga Ora is worth an extra, extra X billion dollars because obviously there's a lot of people who would love a house now instead of a, a, a number and a, and a set of books. So let's talk about the politics of this. Um, we're however many weeks away from the election now, not far. What does it do to the respective campaigns, do you think? There was some talk about whether or not if the numbers were had deteriorated sufficiently that Nashda would come under pressure over its tax policy because, of course, it cleaved off its tax policy from its fiscals and it will present a fiscal plan now that the preview is out in, in, the, in, in however long days to come. That, that presumably, that pressure isn't there so much. Obviously, there remain questions from many quarters about parts of the tax plan, but in terms of uh, the, the, the fiscal implications and likewise for the Labour Party, are there any impacts? Are there any pressures? Are there any, is there going to be any fresh scrutiny that emerges out of this? Yeah, so there's going to be some questions for uh, the national um, opposition about what they would like to see um, the government's books look like under their policy settings. So would they get back to surplus faster? Right. Currently, the Labour government's saying uh, 26, 27 is when they'd be back in surplus. Would they commit themselves to lowering the debt track? Currently, it's peaking at 28% of GDP, net mm-hmm. and net. And, um, and if so, uh, what are they going to do to make that happen? Because at the moment, if they are assuming that their $16.5 billion worth of tax cuts is going to be paid for by foreign buyers levy, um, essentially, <laughs> essentially taking money from uh, fuel tax levies and the emissions trading scheme and giving it back as tax cuts, uh, that sure, that might be a neutral stance, which means that in effect, nothing is different from what we're currently uh, got, what we currently have in the prefu tracks for debt and the surplus. Mm. But the question is, uh, what would you expect your policies to um, to do on both the spending and the revenue front? Um, and this is where we're missing a a really big useful trick, which is an independent costings unit attached to that prefu. Right. So the prefu is great in that it provides the baseline, but if you're going to be serious about it, you need to properly assess, using the Treasury's models properly, 
the um, the effects of plugging in those assumptions around tax, around spending, into that new baseline. And we're not going to see that. We, it would be great if someone you know built one of those fancy models where you it's a bit like SimCity, you, you plug the numbers in and see what you get at, yeah. the, out of, at the end of it. That's not there. At various points, both Labor and National have suggested they'd quite like one until they got into power and realised that um, information is power and while you hold the levers, you can um, use that to bludgeon the opposition. Uh, it's a pity because then we just have to take people's word for it. And in the same way that um, there's now this debate over Nationals' assumptions around its foreign buyers tax, and I think a very valid debate. I think the um, $700 million a year is wildly optimistic. And until National release the actual modelling behind those numbers, um, there's always going to be doubt. Uh, but even better would be an independent uh, unit, as as there is in the United States and in the UK, which assesses the parties before parties' policies before it, and actually works with the political parties. So you actually get better policies. Um, That's interesting. So it's not just you hand in your homework, they mark it. They actually work together, and they will say quietly, actually, this bit here, you might need to go away and do some work on that, so that when you present it. It, it reconciles. Yeah, and and in a way that's supposed to be there because there's usually a treasury person seconded into the opposition um, sure. uh, units. At one point uh, when Judith Collins was the opposition leader, um, they chose to use their treasury <laughs> secondee money for something else. And I must say the quality of the uh, um, proposals so far from National suggests that they haven't had um, that policy wonk in the background, tweaking their numbers and at least challenging them. Uh, and that would be great if if, if you did have one of those um, uh, policy ad- policy advisor, you know, a bit like the, the people from the CIA working in South Vietnam showing them how to do it, you know, people on the side <laughs> going, you know, this is the number you should <laughs> see Yeah, great. Okay, good. I mean, Stephen Joyce was in here recently and he, I think, just about grudgingly accepted that an independent costings unit might might be the go. The, the Greens recommended it back in the day, and I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2017, were widely poo-pooed. Since then, we've had the fiscal hole, uh, as uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen, Stephen Joyce coined back in there. We've had all sorts of bits and bit bobs that might have been ironed out. Like you can never take the politics out of it, right? You can't say that you can do economic projections without politics. There's always politics. But it would be quite nice to remove some of these distractions, sidebar arguments from the campaign period. Yeah, and also do proper analyses of what this would do to economic growth. And also force both both main parties to be honest about and open about the real elephants in the room. For example, why is it we have such low investment in business and in government and in infrastructure compared to other countries? And the reason is our tax system is biased in favour of residential land investment. Secondly, why do we have a, you know, in many cases, overloaded, dysfunctional transport health education systems in our big cities? And that's because we simply haven't invested for the population growth we've had. And why is that? Because we don't talk about population growth in public. The last time someone did that, they had to dump their ideas after a week, which was James Shaw when he talked about um, some sort of population growth target. I've asked the politicians that I've been able to talk to in the last few weeks, what 
do you think our population growth should be? None of them have any um, obvious idea and, in fact, don't want to even address the issue because if they did, they would have to um, come up with some real answers. And that's what I think an independent costings unit would force the parties to do, to actually uh, say what the assumption are, assumptions are they're going to plug into the machine. Tell us what your population growth assumption is. Tell us what your uh, investment growth uh, in some assumption will be. Um, and by the way, when we plug in the tax settings you've given us, that comes up with a very low investment number or a very low productivity growth number. And that would you know, be quite good for people who want to call bullshit on various parties all, of all kinds uh, and say, actually, you're not answering questions. And look, here's the number. Now, you don't want to be too... Um, reliant on a bunch of um, treasury wonks uh, with their models. But still, if it's the same model for everyone, that gives us a clear way to, to measure these things. And it's, it's, it's a real pity that both parties have uh, shied away from having that um, bullshit-calling um, vehicle uh, let loose on them before an election. All I ask when we introduce this, as we will, is that can we do it like, remember the Moniac, that um, reserve <laughs> bank thing that ended up going the to water. the Venice Biennale, yeah, yeah. where they put different bits of water or whatever. So if we could have like a giant, somewhere in the middle of Atea Square or Frank Kitts Park, a giant machine that we can actually see the way, rather than just a spreadsheet, I would yes. like to turn this into an art installation as exactly. well. Exactly, and you get both, you know, opposition, finance spokespeople and the finance yeah. uh, minister up there with their buckets of water on top White of White coats. Exactly. Yeah. In the in one of those um, high, you know, fruit-picking arms yes. at the top yes. with their buckets going in and, yeah, and coloured water too. You want to make sure it's coloured okay. so you get a great scene. And, and you know, you do that four or five weeks before the election. You know, you put, a, you put an election worm in there as well. <laughs> you put the worm down the, down the pipes and see what happens. Uh, we, that would actually be really good. Okay, we'll, we'll make it happen. Bernard, thanks so much for coming in, Cheers. talking prefu with us. Bernard, you can catch him on When the Facts Change on the Spinoff Podcast Network and on The Car Car. Thank you to Sam Robinson for making everything work for us today and to Spinoff members, Kakite. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.